Welcome to the second season of Over to Europe. This podcast is produced by the community of Civica, the European University of Social Sciences. Civica unites eight leading European higher education institutions to create the next generation European university. One of the primary goals of Civica is to connect these eight universities to promote the exchange of knowledge and resources for the European common good. In the second season, we zoom into Civica's research focus areas. For Civica, research is one of the key instruments to achieve its long-term goal of creating shared European knowledge. Thanks to the newly launched project Civica Research, the Alliance will continue to deepen its collaborations in research around these major areas. We talk to researchers and faculty members from the eight Civica partner universities to bring you cutting-edge European research in social sciences. I'm your host Aniket Narawad, a first-year Master of Public Policy student at Hertie School, Berlin. Migration is not a new phenomenon to the world or to Europe. Humans have been migrating since the dawn of time in search of safety, prosperity, better opportunities, higher connectivity, and the possibility to travel longer distances have accelerated this process at an unprecedented rate in recent times. We have seen many communities immigrating on a comparatively larger scale in the last century. Large-scale migration poses several challenges not only to destination countries but also to home countries. In 2014-15, Europe has seen the largest migration since the Second World War. The migration from the Middle Eastern and North African countries is largely known as the migrant crisis. The migrant crisis has initiated a new public debate and political conversations about immigration in Europe. But this is just one side of immigration, which is a complex and multifaceted phenomenon. In response to that, in this episode, we want to have a broader conversation about migration in Europe. In this episode, I speak to three different experts focusing on aspects of migration in Europe. To begin with, I spoke to Natasha Zahn, an assistant professor in migration studies at European Institute of the London School of Economics and Political Science. Let's start with the very first question. Could you please tell us briefly about the migrant crisis that happened in Europe in 2014 and 15? This crisis is very often referred to as a migrant crisis, as a refugee crisis. And I would like to make two points, namely that the actual refugee crisis perhaps happened long before. And what we saw in 2015 was really much more an immigration politics crisis. Many of the migrants that came to Europe in 2015 were from the war. It was ongoing since 2011. From the beginning on, there had been internal displacement. In 2012, already many refugees were in neighboring countries, for example, Lebanon, Jordan, or also Turkey. This situation was obviously not getting better in Syria. It was getting worse really for Syrian refugees in the other host countries. One reason for this is that, for example, Syrian refugees in Turkey don't really have a status as a refugee. They are just considered guests. And so they have very little access actually to integration. Then also the situation in refugee camps was getting worse, partly because Western countries were donating less to the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, the international UN organization that deals with refugee protection and hosting refugees. The situation in these neighboring countries was getting 
getting worse and obviously more people left these countries. Hosting countries of refugees are not always very keen to host refugees for various reasons. So these countries let people move on. There's sometimes even some evidence suggesting that, for example, Turkey kind of waived asylum seekers through. So did then Greece and in Europe. That really led to a situation where asylum seekers were waived through. They also wanted to go elsewhere to traditional asylum seeker destinations in Europe, such as Germany and, and Sweden. Those countries at some point closed their borders. And that's where we really saw the asylum crisis, where Europe was not able to agree on any kind of responsibility sharing mechanism, despite the fact that policymakers in the European Parliament had discussed enhanced responsibility sharing in 2012. That's very typical of asylum policymaking. It's never really proactive. It just deals with refugees when they are there. That really led to this asylum crisis. Some of the countries were quite welcoming in the initial days and some of the countries may not be so much welcoming. Could you briefly talk about why some of the countries were more welcoming? Are there any particular economic reasons to have this immigrants over, especially like Germany, who accepted a lot more immigrants? Would you talk about the economic reasons or the political reasons why some of the European countries welcomed these immigrants? Generally speaking, as soon as an asylum seeker is on a European country's territory, that country has to process their asylum application. If these countries want to be considered good citizens of the international community, countries that respect international and human rights law. Some countries didn't care so much about this, but what do you do when such a large group of people is on your territory? Normally, when you have people crossing borders, that's in faraway places from Europe. You never had such a large group of people in the heart of Europe. I think these countries just didn't want to have these ugly pictures of border guards pushing people back. And some countries were perhaps more concerned about this than others. In the case of Germany, what also played a role was the fact that European integration was not only stagnating, but in a very dire situation after the sovereign debt crisis. I think Germany wanted to show some solidarity. And that's potentially also something that a lot of countries expected because these refugees never wanted to go to Greece. They wanted to go to Germany or to Sweden. When it comes to the economic motives, sometimes they are presented as drivers of this, but later on used as a selling point for their good for our economy. I think European and German refugee policies have never been welcoming of refugees just per se. They're usually very restrict. We shouldn't forget about that. So my impression was there were never really economic motives making Germany open its borders. That was rather later used to say, look, those migrants are actually good for our economy. Germany was always very hesitant to take in refugees. So I think that was not necessarily a main motive. We so far have talked about what the crisis is. Now let's move to 2020-2021. The recent conversation is more about how we can integrate these refugees into the European society. Could you talk about what are the major steps taken by the EU and possibly some of the member states to integrate these migrants into the European society? Starting with the question of what is the EU doing in this area? That's a very interesting question. And the problem is that it can't do anything because integration is not a European prerogative. The EU has no right to legislate in this area. That leads to a highly diverse system or approaches to integration. You have countries like Sweden that at least traditionally was very proactive with early labor market integration and an approach where the idea is really we want to make sure people take roots here, become part of society and contribute to society. Then there are countries, for example, 
example, like Germany or the UK, where the approach is more punitive. We don't want to integrate people. We want to be able to return them. Many of these people stay much longer, and then you have essentially missed a chance to integrate them. Then there's also countries like Greece or Italy, where there's really no integration policy. Much of this is happening more from a grassroots level and NGOs that help the migrants, but not necessarily the government. That is very problematic because many refugees are, are traumatized and they are also a very diverse group. I wouldn't necessarily say because they come from more authoritarian states, they're more likely to be authoritarian minded. Many are actually fleeing this, right? And of course, if people do not feel valued, no chance of getting reunited with their family, people can get desperate and that can lead to a lot of problems. The radicalization of migrants, of course, happened. Perhaps individual people with certainly severe mental health problems, we see really similar dynamics of radicalization as with other groups and, and all types of radicalization from the right-wing terrorism to jihadist terrorism, which is also coming from citizens, people that have lived long in European countries, but that feel disenfranchised and disconnected to society. These refugees come from a very different governance system where they're not used to the democratic system altogether. The democracies in Europe have different values than values they grew up with in their system. Liberty, a lot of tolerance, secularity is, is not part of the system. How challenging is it for them to transfer into this completely new different system? And what is impact this introduction of new people is having on the democratic system in EU also? The impact of these people on the democratic system in Europe is quite low because refugees are not allowed to vote. So they can't really make an impact. And that's quite problematic in a way. I mean, they're governed by a country where they can't really have any influence, even if they've lived there for some time. I mean, at some point you can apply for citizenship, but that's a longer route. With regard to the other question of how far might that be challenging and how can they be integrated into the democratic system, that probably partly reflects my earlier response. It's a very diverse group. Many want to go to democratic countries. That's why they're here. There's a lot of migrants that are very happy to be welcomed and to be in a democracy. Maybe also people who want to go back as soon as the situation is better. As I said, it's a very diverse group, so it's hard to say. But I would expect that it's actually not so difficult to integrate them. I think the point you mentioned, how media portrays the migrant is also very important. How do you think public narrative in Europe has changed since the start of the 2014-15 crisis until recently? That's very interesting. And that's actually something not happening for the first time. Historical examples from really recent history where the situation was quite similar, especially the 1990s, where there were lots of refugees from Kosovo and, and the Balkans coming to European countries. Also after the fall of Iron Curtain in Europe, where lots of Eastern European migrants were coming uh, to Europe. What we saw in both cases is it doesn't necessarily matter how many immigrants are in a country. In itself doesn't lead to more hostility. But if a right-wing populist or really anti-immigrant party contributes to this this discourse is able to mobilize voters. Media plays an important role, but what also plays an important role is then mainstream political actors. In the 90s, for example, in Germany, that was the CDU that really took up some of the anti-immigrant discourse that the right-wing populists back then used with the aim to get back some conservative voters who had started supporting the right-wing populists. And that is something that we also saw in 2014-15 when the Alternative für Deutschland was able to capture and capitalize on this 
perceived asylum crisis, it was clear that things were not working very well. They used this and more moderate parties, such as, for example, the CSU, tried to copy some of their discourse with the aim actually to get some of the voters. Normally, that rarely leads to support for those more moderate parties. Voters vote the original, right? I think the only reason why that is not so important anymore is perhaps that these parties, for example, the RFD is losing due to, due to other reasons. So it's not the fact of having many migrants, but it's the fact of having parties really mobilizing against this. And you can see some countries where there's less right-wing actors where it, it doesn't play such a big role. There's obviously always xenophobia, but not to the same scale as compared to when there's really a party mobilizing. So far, you have talked about the migrant crisis happening since 2014-15. Would you please like to talk about what are the other kinds of migration happening uh, within the Europe? Could you please talk about other different uh, migrations happening in Europe right now? Some people call Europe a fortress. The idea here is that it's actually quite hard from the outside to get in. But when you're inside, it's really safe and you travel around very easily. For example, for third country nationals, they always have to come through the asylum route. You can come as a highly skilled worker, as someone who is in one big company. For a non-European person, it, it's actually hard to, to get into. And within Europe, that's much easier, right? You can move to other parts um, of Europe to look for work, to study. You do see some specific migration flows. For example, many Southern Europeans are going to Northern European countries. The UK has always been a very attractive uh, place to go to for the language, which most people learn in school, but then also the fact that the labor market is quite open also to people with qualifications from elsewhere. And there's not a strong unions that stop employers from hiring people from outside. So we would see perhaps more, obviously, south-north migration and east-west migration. And that has to do with the economic situation in countries like the UK or Germany. That's probably better than in, in Italy or Poland. In some of these countries, you can really see an exodus of young people. It's very hard to find nurses in Eastern Europe. They don't have the qualified personnel that they need. Those people have gone elsewhere. That's quite problematic. But then we also see these countries' migration coming from outside Europe. Professor Zaun gives a clear overview of the recent migrant crisis. She helps us reframe the recent crisis and how the migrants are being assimilated into different European countries. In final parts, she also talks about migration within the European Union. To continue this conversation, I speak with Oran Yoburi, a professor and the chair in economic geography at the Stockholm School of Economics. Professor Yoburi has worked on migration-related issues with a focus on urbanization and labor market integration. In this segment, we discuss how migration changes the urban landscape and the process of assimilation in urban spaces as well as the labor market integration. So first of all, would you like to speak a little bit about what has a recent immigration crisis in Europe changed the urbanization in different European cities? I'm interested in the connection between urbanization and migration, largely because of the nature of labor markets. Typically, the larger the city, the more diverse in terms of the number of occupations and trades that are represented, but also it has a larger number of positions within each occupational trade. So in many respects, the largest cities stand a better chance of providing a good match between the person in search of a job and the jobs that are available. That's true both for natives and immigrants. In that sense, we also know that the larger the city, the more likely it is to be the final destination of migrants and works as a gateway for migrants coming into an economy. They might arrive at the shores of the Mediterranean, but once they try to get a foothold in the local economy, it's very often in urban areas. 
This is true irrespective of the fact that one of the largest single areas of employment of migrants of whatever sort is actually seasonal labor in agriculture. When we introduce a large number of immigrants in a new cities, it puts a lot of pressure on the cities itself, uh, the financial resources and other resources. Would you like to comment on how immigration has put constraint on cities and the countries in Europe and eventually as a result of that uh, pressure on urbanization and cities? We need to approach the issue a bit differently. We may think of it as being an issue of resources, and of course it is. But if we go beyond that, we may think of it as a cost, as an investment. In particular, if we think of it just as a cost and a current expenditure, there is no upside to it. Not only will migrants get a very bad press, as they often do, and it's being exploited in populist circles, but it also misses some of the fundamental values in migration. We do know that all Over time, migrants tend to contribute to the economy. It might not necessarily be the case that they provide a net positive contribution to the fiscal balance of the country over their active lifetime. But generally speaking, they do contribute to the host economy because there are huge differences between migrant groups. This may take 10-20 years, but in many other cases, it moves on much faster. What I think is necessary, before thinking of the cost, it's obvious that the refugees that arrived in Europe in 2015, they increased from about half a million to 1.3 million. That, of course, will put a strain on administrative capacity, on the reception centers, on the monetary side of things. It's also why the EU stresses solidarity across countries to try to even out some of these burdens. Depending on how it's done, it might prepare the ground for successful and productive integration into the local labor market if properly done. The question is, how do we do this in the best way? Having said that, there's a time dimension to this quite clearly. As with any investment, you have to do the investments up front and you reap the benefits later. There is an additional cost that you might not see right away. Simply by not being proactive, you actually make things worse than they could have been. Of course, there's an opportunity cost and that one is difficult to measure. There are also other aspects that share similar type of features here. But we also need to consider, if we look at the OECD area, which includes countries outside the European Union, refugees make up less than one-fifth of the total population, despite that this area actually includes two of the largest recipients of refugees in the world. We find that the great majority of the migrants are not refugees. And in most countries, the refugees are those that are the furthest away from the local labor market. They have the biggest hurdles to overcome. Labor migrants come in all shapes, and we do have return migrants and people who join their families. In particular, labor migrants, and even more so the highly skilled labor migrants, they're often very well integrated into the labor market almost from day one. So we need to be very careful because if we only speak about the cost of receiving migrants, we almost exclusively focus on the refugees, which by the nature of things are not streams that can't be planned big problem is to channel these individuals into the host society, be it on a permanent or a non-permanent basis. Now, countries that do receive migrants who intend to stay, think of the US, Canada or Australia, where many of these arrivals were content on returning home, 
perhaps most of them did not, they stayed on. In those cases, we have a very different situation with respect to the efforts and costs needed to integrate them into the labor market. If we speak about the highly skilled, they typically, in most countries, have as high or even higher labor force participation rates than do the natives. We need to be very careful about what group of migrants we're talking about. We need different kinds of infrastructure to integrate these people because these people come from culturally different, religiously also different background. What do you think about the infrastructure and its effect on urbanization? Again, it's useful to think in terms of not just differences, but also historical experiences. I do think there are different capacities depending on the circumstances. Some countries obviously have greater capacity because they're more experienced or they have more resources. But above all, countries differ, not least with respect to their experience receiving people of diverse backgrounds. In that case, it's quite clear that gateway cities, think of ports, the likes of, say, London or Hamburg, have a much longer tradition of receiving people that speak different languages, come with different ideas, belong to different religions. In many respects, they are more open to diversity. They are also more diverse. Therefore, they might be better able to accommodate the diversity. Now, that doesn't necessarily imply that each and every citizen of those places are more open-minded than people elsewhere. But the chances are that in aggregate, they're actually more welcoming. At the OECD level, 30 plus countries, the total number of foreign born that arrive as refugees is no more than one fifth. This, of course, will look different if we start disaggregating it down to regions. I have the sense from the quite fragmented literature that the immigrant sentiments or the unwillingness or inability to accommodate the newly arrived is greater the smaller the place is and perhaps also the less accustomed the destination is in interacting with diverse groups of people to start with. That would imply in turn that it's very hard to design a policy that fits all sizes. One could imagine that the sense of newly arrived competing in labor markets, forcing salaries down, taking your jobs, arguments we hear all the time, might be more of a challenge both to counter but also to prevent from happening in the smaller rather than larger places. Now, cities, of course, tend to be more expensive, so you can't survive on a low salary, low wage. That's another issue, but we could leave that aside for now. One of your uh, research interests is uh, the labor market and uh, how we integrate the refugees and the other migrants into, into the labor markets. What are the policies so far have been taken uh, by the EU or the member states to integrate these migrants who are not prepared to be easily integrated in the system? What are the steps taken by the cities, countries or the, or the EU itself? As I see it, the EU has worked more on the level of principles and regulations, including asylum procedures to standardize there are also the idea under the various incarnations of the Dublin courts that we should divide the burdens across the, the member states. In terms of active policy interventions, there is far less, partly because it's devolved to the member countries and it's very difficult to design policies that would fit all situations because of the variable number of arrivals over time relative to the past, but also to the resident population. It's true that refugees from certain areas have less formal educational attainment as others in Syria and Iraq, which of course have been two major source countries because of the conflicts that have evolved over the past decade. We do know that at least in the Nordic countries, there's a very strong bifurcation in terms of educational attainment. 
we have the highly skilled and we have a large number of those with very little skills, there is a missing middle. Whereas from other parts of the world, it's more evenly distributed across the skills profiles. So this may differ quite a lot because there's some sorting going on, including that of pre-existing ties. Again, it's very difficult to generalize. Going back to now Savika, which also focuses on several research areas, how do you relate uh, the issue of migration in the four research areas of uh, Savika? And how do you think Savika can help the EU and the overall member states in implementing better immigration policies through their research? The first thing to note is that all of the Civica members engage in research on migration, be it on the policy side or on integration issues. The extent to which it's organized in formal institutes or centers will differ a bit. And also the focus in many respects. By way of examples, within the Civica network, we have the Jacques Delors Center at Herty and the Migration Policy Center at the European University Institute in Florence, both of which have a strong focus on EU policies and issues of governance. Whereas if you were to go to LSE or Sciences Po, the focus might shift into other issues. At SSE, where we do not have a formal center of migration studies, it's subsumed under the heading of social sustainability. We tend to focus on integration. While we do look on labor market integration, we are quite unhappy with that limited scope. We think that integration is something much wider than simply having an attachment to the labor market. Important as that is, we think that we should widen the scope. Within the Silica networks as such, we cover a very wide area of research relating to migration, which I think is one of the issues of strength of the network. In the last segment, I speak to Alexandru Kalan, a lecturer at the National University of Political Studies and Public Administration, Romania. Professor Carlin gives an interesting understanding of intra-European migration. He focuses his conversation on Romania and how migration also affects the home countries. Can you briefly help us understand the migration within Europe? For example, the migration from Eastern Europe to Western Europe. It is a pretty interesting phenomenon and the first point to make is that we have a terminology to cover this issue and this terminology might lead to confusions. For instance, sometimes we speak merely of seasonal workers, which is not necessarily defined as a type of migration. This is one of the reasons why the phenomenon remains somehow vague. Secondly, we have to understand that we have a broader regional context. For instance, according to data from the European Commission, Over 35% of the European Union in 2019 were Romanians, Polish, and Bulgarians. If one adds to this number the Western South, that is Italy and Portugal, you can easily get to over 50% of the European movers. This is quite an impressive number. Now, if we are to speak about the Romanian migrants as such, we have only estimates, we don't have a clear number, but the most circulated number is that of 3.5 up to 4 millions of Romanian working abroad according to the National Institute of Statistics. This number describes mainly those working in the European Union. How one gets to such a situation when you have a quarter of the population of Romania working abroad, it's obviously a long history. If I were to simplify, to put two landmarks in this history, 
I'd say that an important year is 2007, Romania's accession to the European Union. It became a member state. 2014, when restrictions on the labor market in the United Kingdom were lifted for Romanians. And obviously, even more important than 2007, it is really the fall of communism. If you're looking at the broader historical phenomenon, you can see that between 1990 and the early 2000s, it is mostly a temporary phenomenon, very irregular, without a large outreach. It is only beginning with the 2000s that we can speak of an intensification and a stabilization of migration. These are justified by bilateral agreements that provide a legal framework for this kind of work. Another interesting point stemming from this phenomenon of migration from Eastern Europe to Western Europe is the formation of new diasporas. We have new communities forming. They have peculiar ties, both with the country and destination and with the home countries. They are not typical ties that would describe any diasporic phenomenon. You don't have this definitive split with the home country, but you have these people described as diaspora by the media and quickly jumping to the opportunity by the politicians. And they are turning somehow into a kind of actor that is very courted. And this actor has to resist various instrumentalizations coming from the home country. My next question would be to to understand what is the effect of immigrants on the destination countries. I would say that at least in the last 10 to 15 years, we can notice a genderization of migration. For instance, in everything that is related to personal care, to health care, you will have women working, not necessarily young women and not necessarily skilled women. For instance, in Spain, 60% of the Romanian migrants will be women, and the same goes with Italy. You're absolutely right to point out that when discussing migration, the focus is mainly on the country of destination, while the phenomenon of people living from a certain country is less visible in relation to scientific research and to broad representation by media. So we'll have this focus on the destination country as the main narrative about migration. This tendency is becoming challenged and we can notice a reintroduction of the country of origin perspective because migrants are, after all, people who come from somewhere. Where do they come from and why do they have to migrate and what kind of society are they leaving behind? And now turning back to my particular interest, which is on media discourses on migration in the home country, the visibility of migration is generated initially by localized events, but these events turn somehow into recurring themes. And these themes are indicative for a certain relation that is instituted between the home country and those who left. Media is very good at creating this distinction between those who left and those who remained behind. This distinction operates in how media constructs various public problems around migration. One of them is how media manages to elevate the discussion from the mere event to systematic issues. For instance, shortage in workforce for various fields in Romania due to the fact that people working in those areas left for better ways 
wages in Europe. This would be basically the problem of cheap labor. One of the criticisms that is being discussed in the public sphere is that instead of addressing cheap labor, politicians would create convenient policies for employers to hire people from Vietnam and Filipina who would work on very low wages. A second topic that is very specific to the home country is the phenomenon of remittances. As money sent back to Romania by those working abroad, it's not only about money, but also various goods to have a significant car trade between Western Europe and Eastern Europe. You would also have social remittances, that is, models of local development, ways of transferring competences and skills that are gained in the European Union and can be somehow moved back. Again, media goes to a substantial evaluation of these effects, problematizing how sustainable the model of development for several underdeveloped regions in Romania, somehow abandoned by local authorities, no public infrastructure for those communities. Is this a sustainable model of development based on what the migrants could do with their remittances? Another important topic that creates this image of emigration is the electoral context. From country to country, people working abroad, living abroad, might have a right to vote in election. It is the case for Romania that the so-called diaspora is called to participate in voting and it tends to vote in a specific manner, favoring the right rather than the left. This diaspora is associated with a particular type of political activism. To what extent this is just an effect of media framing or a real political and civic issue, it remains to be discussed because if you're looking statistically at how many Romanians working abroad are really going to vote, then the numbers are pretty low. Another recurring topic in the media is related to the children left behind. To what extent Romanians working abroad can take their children with them, can accommodate their children into a new system of teaching, or as it is happening mostly with low-skilled migrants, those kids remain in Romania and their grandparents are taking care of them, that's an emerging social issue that is highly debated in Romania. If we're looking how media is constructing this phenomenon of migration, we tend to ignore several issues that are fundamental and, on the other hand, less interesting from media. There are some positive consequences. You'd have more diversity of transnational ties developing, relations between families, relations between professional circles from various countries, which are operating within these networks of migrants. This could lead to a slightly more cosmopolitan mentality in your typical citizen. The narrative around immigration in the destination countries influences not just the public debate, but also the public policies. If you look at the Brexit, the narrative around that was also was very much around the my immigrants coming in largely from the Eastern Europe. Would you like to touch upon the narratives in the destination countries? It's a very interesting point, the point of Brexit, because in relation to emigration and to the Romanian public sphere, Brexit was tantamount to some kind of tragedy. One of the reasons why Brexit was described in this way was exactly the huge number of Romanians working in the UK and the uncertainty related to what will happen with them. If we are looking at the media from a broader historical perspective, we can see some trends about the emigration narrative. From this perspective of the sending country, we could notice over time a normalization of mobility you would get accustomed to the fact that people would go and work in the European Union 
this tendency of normalization of mobility is accompanied by some focus on structural causes and systemic consequences. Since media cannot focus on, for instance, children staying with the grandparents, they will try to approach structural causes, for instance, the problem of cheap labor. This normalization allows for such a focus, but at the same time preserves some structural and symbolic splits. One of them, those who stay at home, those who leave, the migrants are invested through media to represent Romania abroad. A second trend in this immigration narrative would be a shift of focus from low-skill migration, which was described initially with derogatory terms, to highly skilled workers, for instance in healthcare. Obviously, the same story goes, they are invested with this symbolic mission of representing the country. A third trend is this shift from event-driven agenda of media to structural causes and systemic consequences. To conclude, why it's important to examine these narratives, it points to various disparities and inequalities within the European Union. Division between East and West, between North and South in the European Union. At the second point, it can make visible to what extent this problem requires a national approach or an European level approach, or maybe both of them at the same time. It's important to see that despite media recognizing the European amplitude of the phenomenon, the main responsibility is still associated to local politicians. The leverages available at the European Union to tackle the situation are less present in the public sphere. This narrative helps us to understand the type of post-national belonging. Our ties with the country are becoming less important and we are engaged in various transnational types. I would say that this quite helps us with accomplishing a mission of the European Union from the very beginning. The three experts have provided us with comprehensive understanding of migration in Europe. We hope that the conversation with our experts has brought about a critical analysis that goes beyond the mainstream conversation about migrants in Europe. The second season of Over to Europe is produced by me, Aniket Narawad, and edited by Ricardo Colella, Civica Associate at Hutti School, with the help of Civica Community. Music in this episode was created by Kevin McLeod. This podcast is funded by the German Academic Exchange Service. Subscribe and learn more at www.civica.eu/slash Over to Europe. Stay tuned for our next episode.